Okay, we've begun the gospel of John, and John gives us, I remind you from last week, a very, very specific reason why he wrote these 21 chapters. Verse 20, or verse 31 of chapter 20 says, that you may believe, John says, I wrote this gospel, that you, the reader, the listener, may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. So as we're working through the Gospel of John in 2020, we have a two-fold goal that we're working towards. We have two lenses through which we're looking at this Gospel. The first, as I shared last week, is as we believe, and remember belief is more than just intellectual assent, belief is a whole heart, mind, body, and soul choice to lean into, to give all of yourself to, that is what belief is. And so as we believe this year and we begin to experience new life in Jesus' name, from John 13, where the disciple that Jesus loved leaned into Jesus' chest, where he could hear the heartbeat of his master, that's our goal for 2020. We want to learn how to lean into the heart of Jesus, into his presence, to listen, to become still, to rest, to receive from him his words, his embrace. Recognizing for some of us that that may make us squirm a little bit. That's a very intimate image. But it's in that place of intimate union with Jesus that we're truly transformed. The second goal that we're working towards is we are a church plant. This means that we want to bring anyone and everyone, and not only as a church plant, even once, God willing, we're an established church and we've been a church for 20, 30 years, multiple generations of the church, we want to bring anyone and everyone that we possibly can to come and see Jesus that they might believe. The whole series of the Gospel of John we entitled Come and See. Over and over, what John does is he tells these stories of humans, and they hear about Jesus, they're invited to come and see Jesus, and they walk away from their experience with Jesus with their eyes wide open to a whole new world, and their hearts are transformed. And that's what brings us this morning to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the eccentric older cousin of Jesus of Nazareth. Last week, we looked at the prologue, and the very first verses, the gospel author says explicitly about John the Baptist that he came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. So John witnessed, and he testified concerning the light, and he did so so that through him all might believe. Did you catch that? It was through John the Baptist the gospel author wrote his gospel so that all might believe. And then the gospel author says about John the Baptist, it was through him that humans would come to believe. And what John, the author of the gospel, sets up here is that John the Baptist is actually, he's a prototype of the missionary church. John intended that John the Baptist's words and works, they were to be a pattern for his communities that were reading this gospel. And there are some key parallels between the Baptist calling and your calling and my calling and our calling as a church. So that's the big idea for this morning. As John the Baptist pointed to the light of Jesus so that people would believe through his words and his ways, so too you and I, we the church, we point to the light of Jesus. We point and testify to him as witnesses so that 
the people that we interact with will come to believe through our words, through our ways. We're just going to look at John the Baptist's ministry this morning in detail, and then we're going to apply his life lessons to our own calling as a community sent into modern-day San Diego. And really, you guys, I don't want this to be weird or apocalyptic, but we are the voice preparing the way for Jesus to return. That's, That's part of our responsibility. And so we start with John the Baptist, where in verse 6 it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The first thing that we know is that John was actually sent from God. So hear this. God has always worked in partnership with humans. Always. He always partners with humans to make himself known. Yes, God could have flashed and revealed himself in the sky using lightning bolts and a big sign saying, I am here. But instead, for some reason, we don't know why, he chose to communicate himself to humans through humans. So from Adam and Eve to Moses to Abraham to the kings to the psalmist to the prophets to the disciples, God loves to choose a particular people to reveal himself to the rest of the people in the world through. And that is us. That is the church. In multitudes of tongues across all of creation, the church, believers have been chosen by God himself and sent into the world of humans to reveal God through their partnership with him. So Jesus himself says at the end of John's gospel, when we get there, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. To believe in Jesus is to be sent by Jesus. You and I, we are a community of sent ones. Our entire life is this testimony of God's love. And that testimony, our life as a reflection of God in the world, is sent into our homes and our workplaces and our classrooms and our neighborhoods. And I want you to understand that when you embrace this worldview of seeing yourself and seeing our community as sent by Jesus himself into the world for the sake of revealing Jesus, it infuses our lives with joy and purpose. Now, when you go to work tomorrow morning, it's not just to cut a paycheck. You recognize that I have been sent into this workplace as a specific mission field. And the maker of the universe prepared me to go into this workplace. That's incredible. Tomorrow, when your kids are back in classes and you're doing your homework and you're sitting under your professor's teachings and you're hanging out with your friends, you begin to recognize this isn't just about preparing for my future and my career. I have been sent into this classroom, sent into this circle of friends, sent to sit under this professor by the maker of the universe. And his kingdom is present in me and through me in this moment, wherever I am. Our neighborhoods, neighbors, church. God literally loves our neighbors and he literally set us house by house next to the very specific ones that only you and I can be sent to. That's an intense revelation. That's a way of thinking about the world and your existence in it in a profoundly different way. When a church community... When we begin to partner with the Holy Spirit and we are living in total dependence on the Holy Spirit's power and guidance, we begin to recognize ourselves and live as sent ones. And in living as sent ones, we actually become a noticeable voice within our culture. 
we become a noticeable, influential voice within our circle of friends, within our neighborhoods, within our workplaces, within our classrooms. And so the spirit-dependent church becomes a pastoral voice. We are a pastoral voice, gently and carefully trying to guide the wounded and the broken back into the still waters and the green pastures of the God who created them. This morning during pre-gathering prayer, I invite all of you to come. I didn't share this, but it's coming to me now. My wife asked, is there anything that you feel like is specific that the Spirit's giving you for today? And I had this repeating mantra in my head, I am bringing my lost ones. I am bringing my broken ones. We are that pastoral voice of gentleness for all the broken people of our creation. But second, a community partnered with God in the Spirit also becomes a prophetic voice. Okay, so listen carefully. The pastoral voice of the church is unconditionally loving. It's what everybody wants. Love wins. Love is love. Our culture is desperate for love, longing for acceptance, longing for care and concern about the other. But out of the pastoral loving voice, love speaks truth as well. So there's this balance, these two tethered points, these polarities between love and acceptance and unconditionality, and then the truth and the revelation of who God is. And so the prophetic voice of the truth speaks out of love, but truth often is contrary to the world's lies. And truth is often terribly controversial because it is contrary to the deceptions that our world has fallen into, including you and I, the deceptions that you and I, by God's grace, were delivered from the darkness by the light of Jesus. And so the prophetic voice of the church actually stands in contrast to the chaos of a self-defining culture and a self-organizing culture. And it's abrasive, oftentimes, in the ears of the hearers. The prophets, it never went well for the prophets in the Old Testament, (laughs) ever. It just went bad. As the church becomes a pastoral voice, there's an inclusivity. It's a beautiful word. An unconditionality. But within that framework of inclusivity and unconditionality is a clear truth that is spoken. And oftentimes when that truth is heard, it is deeply opposed. Jesus promised that his faithful followers would be opposed, would be persecuted, because they were preparing the way of a king that was not of this world. So John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a very popular preacher in his day. And he lived out of this prophetic space where he was actually calling the religious establishment of his day to repentance. The holy ones, the PhDs and the scholars and the do-gooders and the do-writers of his day, he was saying, you're all full of it, and I'm calling you all to repentance. And he was making the religious elite very, very upset. And so what they did was they were sending people to figure out who John the Baptist thought he was. Let me read for you. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He didn't fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Okay, track with this. John was calling out the hypocrisy of his day, both in the culture and in the religious establishment. The Baptist was actually speaking corrective truths, corrective truths to a people who had gone far astray. So these delegates are sent to investigate John, and they're asking three specific questions of John. They were asking him, 
essentially the questions that were on the minds of all the people in first century Palestine. Just a little historical context here. When the Romans occupied Judea and first century Palestine, all of the religious folk, particularly the Hebrews, they really began looking for the Messiah, the anointed king who was promised throughout the Old Testament. They began to look for him and long for him and pray for him to return because he would come and he would kick all the Roman oppressors out. There were also other figures in the Old Testament that were spoken of that were to precede the coming of Messiah. For example, in the prophet Malachi, Malachi makes this obscure promise that Elijah is going to precede. The Old Testament prophet Elijah is going to precede the coming of Messiah. There was also the promise in Deuteronomy chapter 18 of this prophet who would be like Moses. And in the last days, he would rise up and he would establish God's truth in the world again. So the culture itself, in the collective imagination, it was rife with this anticipation for the coming of Messiah. Maybe this is Elijah preceding the coming of Messiah. Maybe this is the great prophet. So these investigators come to John the Baptist and they're saying to John the Baptist, who do you think you are? What you playing out here, fella? You're kind of upsetting us with your words. You're calling us? To repentance? Who do you think you are? And given their attitude, when they come to John and they ask him, are you Messiah? He says, no. Are you Elijah? No. He says, are you the great prophet? No. They were coming to him hoping he would say, yep, I'm the prophet. And he would then be discredited in the eyes of the culture around him. Remember, he was very popular. So they were looking for any way to discredit this man and his ministry. John said, though, unequivocally, I'm none of these. I'm none of these. You're not going to Get me to fake who I am. Finally, they said, they're frustrated with him. Who are you? John, who do you think you are? (laughs) Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. What made John's testimony about Jesus so incredibly effective in his day, were a couple things. Number one, John knew who he wasn't. And number two, John knew who he was. John knew who he wasn't, loved ones. And John knew who he was. So from this line of questioning brought against him, John easily could have responded to his investigators as someone that he wasn't. He could have taken on a role, as they were questioning him, he could have taken on a role that God had not given to him. So when they said, are you the Messiah? And he said, no. He could have said, "Mm, yeah, maybe I am the Messiah. Are you Elijah returned? He's like, well, I wear camel hair and a leather belt, and I eat locusts and honey, and I live in the desert just like Elijah did. Maybe I am. But he did. Are you the great prophet? Well, I could be. John didn't do any of those things. He didn't pretend. He didn't play a part. And I want to talk about this for a bit because I think there's tons of application for you and I this morning. Let's drive this home. 2020, San Diego urbanites. What in the world does this crazy, eccentric cousin of Jesus have to do with us? Let's talk about that. Number one, John the Baptist, was, he was comfortable in his own skin. I love this guy. He was so comfortable in his own skin. <laughs> he was comfortable in his calling. And we have to note that John, when he was pressured by the culture around him to be something that he wasn't, he did not cave to it. And it made him terribly eccentric. He was different from his culture because he would not cave to what his culture thought he should be. 
We really don't know this much about John the Baptist. What we do know is that the man had abandoned, essentially, the rat race of his current cultural moment. He had left the cities of Jerusalem, and he had moved into the desert wilderness areas of Judea. Now, it's very likely, just a little bit for you theological historical nerds, just track with me here. It's very likely that John the Baptist was actually part of an extreme fringe group of ultra-Orthodox Jewish separatists known as the Essenes, the Essenes. Now, this particular community, they had fled Jerusalem into the deserts of Judea, and they were escaping the religious corruption of their day. And out there in the deserts, they came to believe themselves to be the voice. They were the right ones, the Essenes. They were the voice that would usher in the coming of Messiah. In fact, the banner text of the Essene Qumran communities was Isaiah 40, verse 3. I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Exactly what John the Baptist quoted to his investigators. These Essene, extreme Jewish separatist communities, they were known for their intensive baptismal rituals. And today we actually have an extensive record of their beliefs and activities through, you may have heard of these, the Dead Sea Scrolls found in the caves of Qumran in the mid-40s, maybe one of the most important archaeological discoveries of the Bible in the last hundred years. I've seen them. I wept in front of them because I'm a Bible nerd and they are amazing in Jerusalem. It's very likely that John's fountainhead, the source of his ministry, came from these extreme Essene communities out in the deserts. These fringe, eccentric people who had separated from their culture, John grew his roots and his understanding of himself within these Essene communities. Now, not only had John left and separated from the culture around him, he had also left his family's expectations. This is really important. This was unheard of in Jewish norms. John's father, do we remember this from the Gospel of Luke? John's father was Zechariah. Zechariah was a Levitical priest in the temple. This means that little Johnny was being prepared from a wee little lad to grow up and become a temple priest. I don't know why I'm talking Scottish right now. <laughs> he had been prepared his whole life to inherit the religious establishment. He was on the fast track. He had every open door. He was the equivalent of privileged in his society. And for some reason, this man said, I'm separating from the oppression and the corruption of my culture, and I'm not even going to follow in the footsteps of my dear dad. I'm going to step away from what I find this to be repulsive and broken. So we got to track with this. He leaves the communities that he considered corrupt. He joins an extreme group of eccentric people who are committed to the return of Messiah, who hold to these bizarre belief patterns, and their behaviors are different than the rest of the world around them. And then out there, imagine with me for a moment, in the deserts of Judea, in the caves of Qumran, silence. Separated into real solitude. No Instagram, no talking heads telling them what to do. Nobody to make a fashion statement for. Nobody to compete with. Nobody to manipulate or be manipulated by. Silence. Solitude. And it was in that separated place that God formed the prophetic words that would come through John the Baptist. So that by the time we see John show up on the scene in his adult years, on the outskirts of Jerusalem, 
He knows what he's not, and he knows who he is. And the only thing he cares about is Yahweh's words given to a broken world that they might finally be healed in truth, in light, in spirit. As we partner with God in the spirit, as sent ones into the world, we too have to separate ourselves from the corruption of our culture. And we have to commit ourselves to a community of like-minded devotees of Jesus. To survive. To, to make it. You have to go to the back table this morning and get in a community. I'm not being manipulative. I'm being biblical here. This is what we see the Baptist did, and the gospel author John sets up the Baptist as a paradigm, as a pattern for us to follow. Our separation through our values, our three values of simplicity and stillness and spirit, those values actually separate us from the voices of Hollywood and the ivory towers of academia and the influencers of Instagram, and they help us to, in a metaphorical way and even in a literal physical way, separate like John did so we can hear God's voice in the silence, in the solitude, so that we can get more clarity on who we're not, more confidence and courage in who we actually are. And it's as we live into deep communal life with one another that our communities are shaped by this partnership with the Holy Spirit to be sent into our different spaces. And this is important for our generation. The church of our day has succumbed to being things that God never intended her to be. And it really damages our witness to Christ in other words, the church has interacted with the world in ways that have confused who we actually are and who we're actually pointing to. Three brief examples. Are you tracking with me? Number one, we are not a political activist community. So a couple months ago, it's Christmas time in my neighborhood. All the dudes get together and we put up lights all through our neighborhood. So I was hanging out with uh, my neighbor, John, and we're putting up Christmas lights. We're having a grand old time. And I got to sharing with him, and I was talking about I'm graduating this spring with my Master's of Divinity from Western Seminary up in Portland. I was just talking through all that stuff, and, he, and John out of nowhere just says, you know, one of my son's friends, he, he's just started a master's degree, and I'm not going to say the school, but it's one of the largest, most well-known theological institutions in the world, actually. And then without skipping a beat, John looks at me, and he wasn't worried about offending me at all, I could tell, because John's a very forthright guy. He's like, you know, I'm so super proud of my friend's name, but that school, their damn politics, it's, it's crazy. They push Trump like he's Jesus on these kids. So I kind of, wrestling through my mind, oh, dear God, what do I say now? I tried to explain to him, you know, John, uh, over the last 50 years in certain, I like gave him a brief sociology lesson in Christianity. I was like, over the last 50 years, we've seen certain Christian communities rise up. They believe that getting the right people into political positions is actually going to bring in the righteousness that the world needs. And John looks at me, he's like, damn, this guy is such an a-hole. <laughs> and, then, and then our conversation, <laughs> I was like, uh, I don't know what to say right now. <laughs> Here's the point I want to make. This isn't the space. I'm not trying to stir up political debate in this room or your opinion thereon. We can have those talks at later dates. The point that I'm trying to make is that my neighbor John associated one of the most premier theological schools in the nation with political activism above the true king of kings. Okay? 
So I closed the conversation. I literally looked at John, and I just went, I, I sent it full, dude. I was like, I'm just going to go bold. I was like, John, you know, those folks, they're my family. There are certain things that my family does that I'm super embarrassed about. But I've got to tell you that for the whole history of the church, we Christians believe that Jesus is a king not of this world, and he's a king above Trump, and he's a king above all. He's the king of kings. And then I turned around, I hung up a light, waiting for a response, and all I got was, so how about them Seahawks, Dan? <laughs> and the conversation went on from there. We are not a political activist community. Number two, we loved ones are not a lifestyle enhancement community. Our culture right now is just full of talk about human lifestyle optimization. From intermittent fasting to mindfulness apps, Pinterest boards filled with the latest design and fashion photos, Designer babies, this is a new thing that we're going to be wrestling with, with genetically modified human beings, something that bioethically we as the church are going to have to really wrestle around with and be able to address theologically and scientifically. We are on a relentless pursuit as humans to enhance every aspect of our existence, and that is not a bad thing. That's actually a very, very noble, good, desirable thing. The problem is... The church abides by a call of Jesus, and the call of Jesus was to pick up a cross, an instrument of self-sacrifice and hurt, to sacrificially serve. The call of Jesus is to pray for and love our enemies from the margins where we're not really seen, and to live simply by detaching from material things. And I'm telling you, when we live into those things, none of those things on the surface appear to enhance our lifestyle on the, on the surface. A subtle shift occurs when a, when a Christian community is absorbed into the culture of lifestyle enhancement rather than separating from that culture of corruption, and the church's teaching slowly begins to morph into how Jesus makes our lives better, right? So Sunday mornings are spent looking into Scripture, and it's twisted into kind of a self-help manual on how to get ahead in life, how to get your business going better, how to network with the right people, how to marry the right person, Jesus does enhance our lives, Christians, just not in the way that the world says our lives will be enhanced. Christian philosopher Brian Greger, he writes this really good book, The Cross Before Me. I highly recommend it. The good and beautiful life is the cruciform life. That means cross-formed life. A life not only saved, that should be but, a life not only saved, but also shaped by the cross. The cross of Jesus has something to teach everyone created in God's image, which is every one of us, about the art of living as our maker intended us to live. So we, the church, are actually a voice heralding a completely different way of life, namely that humans find themselves by losing themselves, that the way up is actually down that the greatest are actually the unseen servants, that the unseen and the marginalized are actually more important than the powerful and the platformed, that the poor are actually rich. And on and on it goes, the counterintuitive, backwards teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. And a cross-centered life, this cruciform life, as Jesus called it, as the theologians call it, that the cruciform life is life enhancement. <laughs> Loss is gain. Poverty is riches. Sorrow leads to ultimate joy. It's the cruciformed life. Again, Mark Sayers from a couple weeks ago. I'll reread that quote because it is stuck in my gut deeply. A pseudo-Christianity of lifestyle enhancement in times of renewal is repented of and replaced 
by spirit-filled abandonment to Jesus, his will, each other, and the salvation of the world. We're not a political activist community. We're not a lifestyle enhancement community. And God forbid, we are not a business. This is a real problem in the church, although I think it's going on the wayside with your generation, Gen Z. Thank you for your up-and-coming wisdom. The church is not a business, and I have fallen prey to this as a leader in the church many times over. When the goal of a community becomes, when the measure of success in a Christian community becomes how many people are coming and how fast is the budget growing, what subtly happens then is suddenly human souls, they are reduced to being a commodity to be competed for in a capitalistic church market economy. And so the church, when that happens to a community, the church loses her pastoral voice. She's no longer a soul healer. She's all about buying and selling and trading souls for growth for the sake of ego, for the sake of flash, for the sake of being seen. Worse yet, the world honestly looks at the church as business and says, what are they doing? What, are they just about money and bigger properties and expanding their franchise? Because I don't understand any of that. I need somebody to tell me that I'm loved. What are we then? Moving forward through the rest of this teaching. What are we then? John knew who he wasn't. He also knew who he was. Remember, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So like John, we the church were a pastoral and a prophetic voice in partnership with God, preparing the way for Jesus. And for 20 years, I thought that we could make Christianity culturally, contextually viable. It's not. We are eccentric. If you are an apprentice under the master Jesus, he will make you look strange, think strange, do differently than the world around you. And it's through our separation in our times of silence and solitude that we actually finally become deeply comfortable with who we are and in silence and solitude, separated from the corrupting voices of culture and even religion, we begin to form in the spirit those qualities of character that are truly life-enhancing. And in knowing who we are and not trying to be things that we aren't, we begin to actually live out of humility, a deep humility. And that humility complements a great courage, which makes our message, our voice, clear. John was humble. He wasn't just eccentric. He was terribly humble. He was not thinking about himself. Pride was no longer driving this man's need for place in the world. Somewhere out there in the silence, I just want you to get acquainted with that, silence. Somewhere in the stillness, God's Spirit had so touched this man, John, that he knew his place. So that when Jesus arrived, John said about Jesus, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. John said about Jesus, he's the one that touched me out in the deserts. He comes after me and he surpasses me because he was before me. John knew his place in the kingdom. John knew his place in the presence of the Spirit. And it was a deep humility that looked only to Christ. He wasn't looking to himself, his abilities. He wasn't looking to the culture or his peers. He was looking to Christ, and out of that came this deep humility. John somehow had allowed the eternalness of all of this to touch him. 
the holiness and the vastness and the eternalness, this, this out there had touched John deeply in his deepness, in his visceral spaces. And Jesus was actually real to this man to the degree where he could say, it's all about him. I only look to him. And in pointing to Jesus, John knew how great he was and how small how great Jesus was and how small he was. And you need to understand, this wasn't self-diminishing on John's part. It had become a passionate reality for him. It was his identity, this humble looking to Jesus. John actually was probably one of the most liberated characters we see in all of the Bible. He just flat out was not imprisoned to the cultural opinion or his own narrative about himself. He was free to love and be loved by Jesus which made John, in his eccentricity, eccentricity? Is that a word? Eccentricity? Thank you. Okay. It made him courageous and clear with his message. John did not compromise, meaning John didn't cower and kind of soft pedal and apologize for believing in Jesus. Now, there are things about John that were very abrasive. Uh, I don't know if any of us should ever get there. We need to exercise prudence and wisdom in the way we interact with the world around us because the church has done such a terrible job of being a pastoral voice. But we cannot allow ourselves to compromise and cower before a culture that we sit in contrast to out of love. He had experienced the love of God, and that had obliterated any need in John for fitting into the corruption around him. He had escaped. He'd literally escaped. And he was secure, and he could say with total love, in all of John's craziness with his big beard and locust legs hanging out of his teeth, he, he loved Judea. He loved his father's lineage. He loved the religious culture that he had escaped. He loved them, and it made him bold, and he pointed him to Jesus. He pointed clearly to Jesus as the hope for all. John saw Jesus coming, verse 29, and this is where we're going to wrap it up. John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So in silence and in solitude, somehow John, in reading the prophetic scriptures from Genesis all the way to Malachi, actually it would have ended with Second Chronicles, the Hebrew Bible, John would have been out there with the Essene community, deeply studying, meditating, allowing those texts to shape him. Somewhere he saw, my goodness, the priesthood that I was going to be a part of, it's pointing to a singular individual, a sacrifice that will be made for all humans. Somewhere where he was out there reading the psalmist and you could hear the lament within the psalmist's prayers, he could hear the voice of Messiah on the cross, why have you forsaken me? Somehow, as John read the stories of the great kings rising up, all the Israeli kings through history, John began to see out in the silent and solitude places, there's a king coming, and this king will absorb all that these kings did wrong. So John's message, when he finally arrived on the scene, it wasn't one of, you need to try harder. It wasn't one of personal moral striving. It wasn't one of social reform through whatever means, whether that be education or social justice initiatives. All of those things are wonderful, but that was not John's primary message. John's primary message was to point to a Messiah that would take the sins of the world into himself and free us. In the wilderness... John, in silence and solitude, had experienced, he had experienced in his deeps the loving grace of God, forgiving him, removing his sins from himself. And John, all he knew and all he could declare from that moment on to every person he saw, 
to the entire culture, as contrary as it was to what the culture thought they needed, look to the Lamb who takes your sins away. When we believe, when you and I deeply believe that Jesus is the Lamb who was sacrificed for my sin, for my wrongdoing, it will cause us to separate from anything and everything that diminishes our experience of that grace. When you have been touched by the forgiveness of Jesus, it invigorates a real fight with sin, a real hatred for that which separates us from the presence of his spirit. And what he paid for, we no longer want to dive headlong into. We fight with it. We struggle with it. We want to separate from it and escape it. And when we see Jesus, the lamb, taking my sin, our sin, into himself to save us, it's terribly humbling. The cross and the lamb sacrificed reminds us that we couldn't overcome. We couldn't do it ourselves. We couldn't get it right. That's humbling for us as humans. Self-made, tighten up your bootstraps, strap on the belt, get it done, Americans. And John's message is you can't. When we look to the Lamb and we experience our great need for a sacrifice to overcome our own personal sin, we're humbled. But out of that humility comes this great courage because now there's nothing in this world that will separate us from that love. Not even our own jacked-up narratives. Not even our own mental doubts. Not even our, the love of Jesus as expressed in the cross assures us and gives us a courage that we are safe and secure in his love for all of eternity. And so for us as a brand new forming community right here on the east side of the city of San Diego, we are not a political activist community. We can talk about politics all we want, but that's not our primary gig. And we're not a self-life enhancement community, at least not in the way that the world wants enhancement. And we are certainly, God forbid, we are not a business. Neighbors, we are a voice crying in the wilderness of our city saying clearly and with courage to every person that we can, with deep love and clear truth, look to Jesus, the Lamb, who takes away your sin. Trust him. So we're going to come to communion, but before we do, we always want to try to give you guys something practical to work out this week within your community, something to actually tangibly talk about and actually do, like teeth, sink your teeth into something. Three things that I want you to do this week. Number one, separate. Actually separate. So for some, that may mean for the first time you sit down and you do some silence and solitude. You set a timer and for 10 minutes, you just sit quietly and listen to your heartbeat and your breath and learn to actually just even know who you are. Don't judge yourself. Jesus is not judging you. You don't need to, to, to get it right. You don't need to be like, oh, I just got to make these thoughts stop. That's like trying to stop a tsunami. Instead, just get on your surfboard of contemplation and let the thoughts just kind of go and know that you are with Jesus. The contemplatives, the Western church has missed the contemplatives for thousands of years. Part of the mission of this church is to reinvigorate a contemplative, charismatic Christianity. For some, maybe this would be a good week. Beginning of school, new year, take a week and just separate from all the social media platforms. Try to just make your phone a dumb phone for a week. And just separate. See what happens. Maybe for some, it's planning a quiet day with all the devices off, left at home, maybe out at the beach with just a journal and your Bible for an entire day to just watch the waves crash. 
and be in awe of this world. For some of us here at the very beginning, I can guarantee you to separate, you need to separate from the cultural communities that are continually giving this corrupt advice and influence, and you got to dig in deep. Become a new Essene. Neighbors, we're going to be a fringe, eccentric community meeting on the campus of a major Californian secular university. We are the new Essenes. We write the new scrolls. You guys will write the scrolls that history will find and say, here was a turning point in the church. Here was an escapist community who said, we're going to separate so that we might speak with love and courage and clarity. But you have to do that together. You can't survive this thing alone. Number two, if you separate, number two, behold. When John says, behold, the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world, that word behold in the Greek is hide, hide. It's a very important word in all of the Greek texts, particularly in the Gospels. It's a very strong word. And it means more than just turn around and be like, hey, behold, there's the Lamb. It means take hold of, grasp, let it go deep down in, and trust in this Lamb. Behold is to have everything that you are leaning into that presence, leaning into that reality. And so in your times of separation, silence, solitude, Sabbath-keeping, all the things that we ramp on every single week, let your mind deeply behold, take hold of, let your heart grasp the Lamb who has taken sin from you, and out of that will flow this humility and this courage and the Holy Spirit. You can ask Him to come and make you assured in your experience that Jesus has taken your sin away. And then finally, number three, separate, behold, declare. Declare. It's out of the overflow of worship, out of the desert spaces of silence and solitude that you can go into the workplaces and the classrooms and the homes and the cities and even into your own communities and just very gently with as much love as you can muster. Join me this week. Come behold the Lamb. Come get lunch with me. Every time we declare, and by invitation, this is what we're talking about next week, by invitation, bring somebody into our world, we're bringing them into the world of Jesus because Christ dwells in you. That's how powerful you are. And our only step after that, after lunches and love and care, is to declare, I am who I am because of Jesus the Lamb. Behold him. Come be part of this community with me.